This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Plays it into Trey. Two seconds wide. Trey Slaughter. Hello and welcome back to the Sports Ethos Atlanta Hawks team coverage podcast, <coughs> formerly known as Hoopball Hawks. We cover everything regarding the Atlanta Hawks. I'm your host, Brad Harden, and I'm recording live from Atlanta, Georgia, as you already know. And today we have a very, very special guest on the show, friend of the program. Now, he, he's going he's gonna to shy away from this. I call him <laughs> an Atlanta Hawks savant. He will be humble. He will, he will, you know, shy away from that. But I'm going to give him all the credit if no one else does. And I'm really excited to welcome contributor for PeachTreeHoops.com, Glenn Willis. Glenn, how are you doing this evening? I'm I'm good. Um, out here in Seattle, we've actually had a little bit of sun the last few days, which makes us all perk up a little bit. But uh, really great to be on with you, Brad. I know we've kind of um you know, talked about the possibility here but nice to see it finally kind of come about and look forward to talking with you here i'm glad to have you on the show too i mean three time zones away but we we're able to make it work uh, he's a busy man i'm a busy man but you know who is not busy right now unfortunately is the atlanta hawks as their season did end i mean if you were under a rock or um in isolation for some odd reason which is kind of weird right now it's been pretty good weather across the country but the Hawks are out of the playoffs. They did lose in five to the Miami Heat. And uh, we're just going to just jump right into it. Um, we want to start where we where we ended because we everybody knows how the Hawks started. But in your opinion, Glenn, when they turned the corner towards the end of the season and then went into the play-in and in the series against Miami, what was your thoughts? What did you see get better game to game in this team that – maybe gave you a sense of confidence for whether it was potentially doing something this series versus Miami, obviously that's concluded, but looking forward, obviously beyond for this franchise. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was interesting to try to kind of track their trajectory, you know, towards the end of the season, um, you know, from a wins and losses perspective, a, pr- a pretty strong finish. Um, it, they still felt like a team that kind of underplayed their talent level, I guess. Um, yeah. Uh, even as they were winning most of their games down the stretch, and then they got into themselves into a situation where they had to win two games to to get in. Um, and I thought they were at the end of the season, you know, better than both Charlotte and Cleveland uh, in in the in the forms that you know those teams were at the time. Uh, but it was still going to be you know work uh, to kind of to kind of get through there, especially when Jared Allen came back to play that that last game. And then he- heading in, you know, to the series against Miami, I, you know, I thought 
Miami was a decent you know matchup for the Hawks, mainly because they have you know two or three, depending on how we're counting, different guys in their rotation that are pretty weak defenders. And I thought the Hawks would be able to kind of make um, use of that and generate enough points. And I thought Miami had a you know not the highest offensive ceiling themselves, so I thought well maybe the Hawks can kind of match you know kind of offensive output here across the board with Miami being really strong on defense, not so strong on offense, the Hawks being really strong on offense and not so strong on defense. And then, you know, with you know the three guys being Struce, Hero, and Duncan Robinson, that, you know, that, that was enough to kind of give the Hawks something to attack. Um, but, you know, what I did not expect, um, for whatever reason, was Spo dialing up so much attention on Trey. I mean, he took it to, I thought, like, you know, the Hawks have so much three-point shooting, you think, like, they're going to have to have some balance on their defensive plan. But they went, like, all in on just not giving Trey any space to work with ever. Um, yeah. And, you know, Bam and PJ, uh, I mean, Spo basically wouldn't, after about the first game and a half, wouldn't put Deadman on at the same time as Trey. would move PJ to the five if that's what he had to do when Bam got in foul trouble a couple times. Mm-hmm. And they just basically gave Trey nothing to work with. And the, and the Hawks, you know, is it a coaching issue or is it a – you know, a player um, kind of a, a real-time adjustment issue to not be able to kind of do anything with the defensive scheme they threw with them. But, I mean, we I think you and I, Brad, watched five games and they never solved it at all, you know. And that's, yeah. you know, I, I had projected a seven-game series going in, um, and it was a five-game series because the Hawks just couldn't unlock anything offensively, and, and that took me by surprise. Yeah, and... To your point, the the lack of adjustments throughout the series, that was something that was really heavily talked about on Twitter. It was talked about here in sports radio in Atlanta. Everybody was pointing fingers to Nate McMillan and Nate has his flaws. And we've you know, I've seen you talk about it. I've talked about it. Others about how he kind of has that old school mentality of just let him play. And it's culminated into some very glaring, very obvious mistakes of just letting 10 12, 14, even 20 all runs go without calling a timeout and controlling the momentum of the game. And to your point, the lack of adjustments offensively, especially when they focus so heavily on Trey. And me personally, I was not surprised that they did that, but it kind of lends to a conversation. Obviously, we'll have a little bit later in the program of not really having that strong, consistent number two next to Trey that will kind of give teams a pause to put that type of defensive pressure on Trey Young and kind of make things a little bit easier. So to me, and I would ask this question and maybe this kind of jumps ahead. Is it more personnel or is it more coaching as far as some of the woes this season? I mean, injuries, injuries happened. I am the first one to say that, you know, coming into this year, we had a shorter offseason. We had a lot of people coming into the offseason injured, which means they had to heal and recover, which means they had less time to work on their game. And then, boom, they get thrown back in the training camp and they started the year that they did. But as the season progressed, people got healthier. Obviously, we had some people drop off here and there, John Collins and whatnot. Is it more personnel with this team or is it more coaching, in your opinion? Yeah, so I, I'm going to say that, you know, and this is going to maybe sound like a cop-out, but hopefully I can explain, but it's, to me, it's a bit of both. I, I ding the coaching more because I feel like um, a coaching staff has to understand um, the collective skill set they have on their team and 
uh, kind of steer their scheme, steer their actions towards the things that kind of work for them. Um, you know, we, we've heard all this year, Nate, talk about wanting to attack the mismatch, right? And, and you know, I think what we learned um, in this Miami series is that they're really lacking secondary creators in that. Now, we, like we know, Kevin Herter can run a pick and roll and can read the play. Um, you know, he's not good, but he's not a guy who's going to do um, the things that you really need from your secondary guy at the highest level of NBA basketball in the postseason to, like, go to the rim and get contact, you know, and get to the foul line if that's what he has to do. Um, you know, Bulky was the closest thing they had to that, and, you know, he's struggled with injuries off and on, you know, both years he's been in Atlanta. That that happens and, you know, and such. But the, he basically was able to give them nothing, nothing the last couple, you know, games of, of that series. But in my mind, um, you know, the idea is that when, when the opposing teams are switching, which the Hawks, it felt like the Hawks last two months of the season, when well, that's what they saw, like, around 80 to 90 percent of the time everybody's like we're going to switch on trey you know we're just that's just what we're going to do and not uh, let them run their you know p- classic pick and roll game and generate all these points at the rim and all that sort of stuff and and of course like the best two teams in my mind switching are miami and boston um and and we saw that in like the last couple times they played boston and we saw that in this miami series so if nate's plan to counter a switch heavy scheme is to uh find the mismatch and attack it well the way that miami was playing that trey has to give the ball up it has to go to bogey or to hunter or to herder right now based upon the way the roster is constructed right now maybe delon if delon's on with trey and those guys have to be able to drive past a defender who's closing out on them collapse the defense and either generate a shot for themselves or kick the ball out and I think most of those guys can do most of that, like at least at an average level. But what we saw was that the Hawks don't have secondary creators that can drive by average defenders reliably. And mm-hmm. so if Nate's plan is attack the mismatch, a lot of times that's ball rotate, you attack the guy closing on you, you dribble past him, and then you have enough um, ball handling and driving ability to go in and make something valuable happen. And you know, Hunter can't do that reliably. Herder can't do that to the level that they need reliably. Bogey is um, pretty reliable in the mid-range, and it was pretty good in the Heat series kind of getting to the rim now and then. But if that's going to be Nate's plan, this roster is not skilled at the two and the three to really give them that in my mind. So it's like, do you push Nate to say, find something that works for this roster? Or do you take a big step back and say, we need to refactor the roster to have guys that play at the wing that have exceptional ability to be able to drive past uh, tender, uh, defenders that are closing out on them. You, know, you could solve it either way, right? But in my mind, my judgment of the past season is, Nate, you got to do what's going to work for this roster. Looking in the next season, you know, it could be some of both. Nate, you've got to find some things that work for the roster that you have, or we're going to switch things up in a, in a big way and try to find guys that can – work as secondary creators, specifically driving the ball at defenders. And I, I mean, you, you continue to hit the hammer on the nail at this point because I, I am in, in Cameron I mean, even with his faults, I wanted to see, like you said, the ability to get to the basket, penetrate into the lane, start inside out. I think that, the scheme that they have created, they relegated a lot of people to just being catch and shoot players. When we've seen opportunities where Herder can attack the defense and get into the mid range and 
at times he's he's money from the mid range. Same thing with DeAndre Hunter, and we started seeing that this series him being a little bit more aggressive and getting to the cup and getting to the foul line. Bogey, you know, is obviously self-explanatory. He bogey is bogey, but he can't stay on the floor. So I agree that Nate McMillan did not accentuate the strengths of this roster, and he kind of just once again kind of you know let him play it out set in his ways if people want to call it that because he is a tenured coach in the nba and just kind of just let things play out to a point where people weren't being utilized effectively and their skills weren't being accentuated which is goes back to my point that i continue to talk about i think this offseason it will be a shakeup of the roster i think they're is a trade to be made. We have people with very friendly contracts that we can package and try to bring someone here. But I also talk about, I think there needs to be an evaluation of this coaching staff as well, because to your point, the lack of offensive creativity or really in as efficient as we are as an offensive team, everybody can look at and obviously the numbers and see how we are as a team this past year offensively. But to not have someone who is creative on the offensive side to create sets and plays to get players in their spots. I mean, I have a buddy of mine who who was in the, the system with Nick Nurse in Toronto. Toronto did a wonderful job of player development, which we talked about coming uh, before we even got on the show. Player development and hitting players in their spots, so you know that okay, on this possession, we're gonna get you know, Kyle Lowry the ball, you know, at the top of the key and let him work. We're going to we're going to set a screen, get him that three point shot that he likes. We're going to get Pascal Siakam the ball at the top of the paint and let him work in the match. Fred Van Fleet, you know, set some off ball screens, get him some catch and shoot opportunities. We didn't necessarily see that. It was just a pick and roll and then everyone standing, spacing out, essentially. And it was a stagnant offense at times, even though it was an efficient offense. So. I, I think that we need to potentially look at some staffs that are known for that. I mean, I mean, obviously, I know there's some chatter about Nick Nurse in L.A., but the young assistant that can come on the staff, work on the offensive side of things, show their creativity, really look at the roster, look at the film and say, hey, these are where we what the roster has is, and obviously there'll be some changes being made potentially. Uh, get this player to, the ball here, run this set here, do some more off-ball things for Trey. I think that that may be the direction that this team may go, and then throw some potential, obviously, trades or draft needs and whatnot. What do you think to that? And is there a team that comes in mind that maybe you know Travis Link and you know management needs to kind of poach that staff and see if hey, we can we get someone down here to Atlanta to help that side of things here? Yeah, I mean, and that's another way to to does Nate in my view because you know NBA coaches, head coaches by and large are typically empowered to you know uh, hire their own you know their own staff. And now there are uh, clear exceptions to that, like what happened with the Lakers this past year was you know the opposite of that. You know, yeah. from from all reports anyway. You know, um, but you know, like I, I feel like you know when we look back on this season, the Hawks missed Melvin Hunt. You know, I felt like he was one of their primary contributors to their offensive um, kind of innovation that they, you know, the player movement, um, you know, doing more um, dynamic things offensively. That was the case, you know, under, uh, you know, Lloyd Pierce's staff, which included Melbourne Hunt. Of course, Melbourne Hunt finished the season last year. 
Um, but you know, he uh, didn't come back and they hired, hired Jamel, you know, now I, I don't know, I don't know enough about Jamel to know, you know, how good or bad of a coach he is. And it may not even be my place to, to judge that, you know, necessarily, cause I just don't know enough to really say anything. But in my mind, like when you, when you bring in your son, it's, it, it at least people are probably going to scratch their heads some, you know? Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't feel like it's, you know, at the end of the day, very fair to just focus on Jamel. The, I think the the big thing was the loss of Melvin Hunt. And you could see that in um, how simplified and um, not dynamic a lot of the things that they did on offense was. Now, I mean, this, but some of this still goes back to Nate's coaching philosophy, which is, you know, he, he doesn't want to run a lot of super complex things, but this is why Nate wants to play veterans. This is why Nate has a, a real affinity for veterans. Like, you know, think about kind of Lou Williams. Lou doesn't need you to run something for him, right? Lou can go right. do what he needs to do with a very basic kind of, kind of you know, set and let him go attack. Um, and that, now Lou's not the same player he was like three years ago, of course, but that, I, I'm kind of trying to highlight Nate's philosophy. And this is why, this is one reason, for example, that as the season got, you know, got deeper, never saw Jalen Johnson play, you know, in the rotation. And there's was this constant reliance on his veterans um, because when you're just saying attack the mismatch, what Nate basically wants, I, I, I think from all indicator indications is five veterans who kind of know how to do that. And if, if you're as old as I am and you watch, you know, the NBA in the eighties and, you know, and, and heading into the nineties, uh, you know, that's basically what it was, was veteran players kind of just a, uh, attacking you know a weak defender or trying to draw a mismatch and kind of attack that and uh, that's really not where the league is anymore uh, in mm-hmm. my view so I, I agree with you that there needs to be in my mind some sort I mean I also want to mention they lost Marlon Garnett from last year too he ended up sitting on the front row um, yeah. in Charlotte and which was a great get I think for Lamelo you know ball and, and his development so I felt like you know I, you know that loss was was there too, but I, I thought the loss of Melvin Hunt was significant, and that was part of, I think, moving on from Lloyd Pierce. I don't want to really get relitigate that at all. Nate <laughs> did an awesome, awesome job, you know, getting them into the playoffs and all the way to the conference finals last year. October, so, you know, two I think important positions among the assistant coaches' rank, and and to me that really showed up on offense. I, you know, I think it'd be fair to say it was all the, the assistant coaching turnover. I think it was that plus Nate's. Um, philosophy that we're going to attack mismatches and the philosophy for him that he needs veteran players to do that. And that's not exactly the roster that the Hawks brought into the season. They still had young wings that are developing and needing some developmental focus. Yeah. And it speaks to obviously hurting the development of young players because they're not getting on the uh, the court because of Nate's philosophy of wanting more veterans, which seems like, obviously, to your point, he wants more high IQ type players that kind of know the game. And when you have the the young crop that they have that are still figuring out their games, figuring out, obviously, developing into their bodies. I mean, when you think about Okongu, Jalen Johnson and others, it's it's going to be a process. And maybe and I know there's a lot of obviously comparisons between us and the Warriors because of Schlenk, (coughs) Ray Young, Steph Curry. Potentially, if they find that offensive assistant that makes that impact, you know, next season, could that be the coach in the, in, in the wings, potentially, if they struggle out of the gate, but the team takes a liking to this coach? And maybe this is the some some Hawks fans may rejoice to this. Maybe maybe Nate McMillan has to be the the Mark Jackson 
so we can get a Steve Kerr here. I mean, I because I, they don't have a bad roster. We have assets to move. And to your point, I think it has to be if Nate's not going to make it work, we have to figure out ways to make it work. And it's through personnel and, and a potential coaching change. Um, not maybe Nate McMillan. I, I don't think Nate McMillan should be fired. I know a lot of I know the hashtag came out after they lost in five. And yep. I just kind of rolled my eyes at that. I was like, OK, I don't I don't think he a little. I mean, little do we know. How did you forget last year? Um, as my dog is uh, cheering us on as we record <laughs> right now. Uh, okay. How do we forget? How do we forget last year? And, and yes, it was very disappointing season. It was a very disappointing season. To your point, we underperformed and there was a lot of factors. But that I think that change is something that I would hope to see. Now, if it if it happens and to your point, you know, coaches, coaches have a lot of control over who's on their staff. That is going to have to be a conversation that Schlenk and uh, McMillan need to have. And I would love to be a fly on the wall in that office here in Atlanta if that conversation is to be had. Yeah, I mean, that is going to be one of those interesting, you know, kind of parts of the offseason to watch that generally doesn't get a lot of attention, you know. Um, you know, we're all, I mean, most people understandably thinking about free the draft first and then potentially get a trade, which can happen on draft night or wait until the July 1st, you know, kind of a moratorium when everybody's cap sheets kind of flips over to the new NBA year and stuff. But that, to me, like in terms of what the co- this coaching staff needs, um, that is going to be an important area to watch. Uh, you know, it, but I think we always it's always important, I think, for us to remind ourselves that Nate McMillan is a defensive minded coach. His like 80 percent of his belief system as a coach, I think, is to make sure all five players on the court know their defensive responsibility on every possession at all times. And that's what he gets invested in. And again, I, I know I sound like I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but if you go back to like 1980s NBA basketball, all coaches were, for the most part, if it's some minded coaches that just let their two best players go to work on offense with a lot of freedom to kind of attack a weak defender force a mismatch, whatever you might do and stuff. But the you know, coaches really exerted their influence on the defensive in the court. And that's still what Nate is. And if we think back to the success they had in the, in the playoffs a year ago, you know, you know, it, it, they were, had a perfect plan against Randall and Randall couldn't do anything against them. Their plan against Embiid was basically to wear him down across the game and pounce on the Sixers in the fourth quarter. That works. Um, when they got in, you know, against, against the Bucks. You know, they, they were outmanned and overwhelmed, you know, didn't really have anything to kind of throw at them. But they they fought and got all the way to a game six and put one a game without Trey, and, you know. And so it, it's interesting to kind of think about where they were one year ago at this time um, to, to where they are now. But I think if we kind of pull way back, you know, Brad, when we think about the six, the uh, the next team they faced and we saw Herder having success, right? Um, and we saw Bogey, you know, having a real impact. We go if you really think about, well, who were the guards and wings that were defending Herder and Bogey? I mean, we're talking about Reggie Bullock, Derek Rose, you know, those types. Alec Burke, you know, yeah, yeah, not the strongest, you know, you know, point of attack defenders. And then when they got out of the second round, it's Seth Curry, you know, and you know, and I mean Ben Simmons, um, they threw at trade basically. But when, it, when we think about what Herder was dealing with, what Bogey was dealing with. I mean, what Hunter would have been dealing with if he were healthy. I mean, those were teams that had real weaknesses. You get into a setting this year, and, and in this sense, I'm really glad they drew the heat because I think they um, – I see the playoffs as kind of a really important feedback loop for you, especially when things fell. 
to, to think about, okay, this time we were seeing Kyle Lowry, you know, Jimmy Butler, you know, et cetera, PJ Tucker, you know, defending, you know, down positions to the guard. It's like, okay, this was, this is more representative of what you're typically going to see when you go deep in the playoffs. And now when we know like, Oh, Herder maybe can't be the secondary creator in this playoff environment. That, that doesn't mean he can't be helpful. He's not good. It's just that he can't be Trey's number two based upon what we saw in this series. And Bogey needs to be probably like that third guy too, especially if you're going to play him on your second unit for the most part, things like that. And so I, I think it's, you know, you know, uh, basically irrefutable that Trey's number two offensive kind of, you know, sidekick that that person is not on this roster right now. Yeah. And if it took them getting to this series into the series against Miami to make that as painfully obvious as it is right now, that's valuable and that's an important and a good, helpful outcome. So long as Travis Schlenker has the realization to come back and say, yeah, that guy's not on this roster right now. You know, maybe what we saw last year from Herder, you know, in, in the really good games he had versus these defenses that had pretty weak point of attack defenders made us think that he was going, you know, on the developmental path to get there. Now we know that's probably not a, a realistic expectation for him. So that, that Trey's offensive sidekick, not on the roster, we know that now. And one of the reasons we know that is they faced this Miami team and had this much trouble and the coaching staff couldn't solve it and the players couldn't solve it. So now you know. It's it's completely irrefutable where a year ago, maybe there was some ambiguity there. Now you know. And I think that's a good thing. And I agree. And I said coming into the season, this was an evaluation uh, season because, hey, we ran it back. We brought back 10 guys from the roster last year to kind of figure out who's going to stay and who's going to go going into this offseason. So maybe that was the dose of reality that we needed, uh, which, you know, some fans may not like to hear. But to your point, you know, you learn more from your losses than your wins. And that's that's where I developed as a player, you know, playing college football. It is those moments of defeats, those moments where I slipped and my technique <laughs> was off and and whatnot. That's why I, I grew. And hopefully this is an opp- a learning opportunity for this Hawks team. Now, this is going to be I'm going I'm I'm to get to Trey first and then we're going to talk about the offseason because Trey had a fantastic year. I saw a lot of growth in him, uh, especially as a game manager, controlling the game. Uh, his passing took a step up. Uh, his efficiency went up. And I think that. You know, everyone's going to talk about how he looked against Miami in the in the first round this year. Everyone's going to talk about that. And he took his lumps and bruises, but all the great ones do early in their career to spur something great to come. In your opinion, where does Trey stack up all NBA, in your opinion? And where did you see the most growth in his game this year? Yeah, I mean, I think he's easily all NBA. You know, it's. This season was kind of a hard season to to rank the guards because, like, you know, Harden got traded and, you know, he, he probably doesn't end up, you know, one of the six that are on there. And, um, you know, uh, you know, Kyle Lowry didn't have your traditional kind of Kyle Lowry year. So, and Dame didn't play. So it's, it's hard. But I, I, to me, he's easily one of the, you know, best six guards in the league. I think if, if I had to guess, like, where he kind of deserves to, to rank is probably second team, you know, all NBA. Um, if, if, if Hawks fans want to try to make the case that he's see first team, I'm not going to, you know, fans are fans and fans deserve to be excited about their guys. So I, I wouldn't begrudge anyone trying to, to make that argument, but he had, I mean, just a ridiculous season. The growth that I saw for him was coming into this season that 
the teams really from the get-go were um, it wasn't that everyone was switching early on, but teams were trying to do things to stay out of the drop because of trade just murders you with the floater. And like yeah. he did that to New York last year and uh, Philly. And then, and then even to tell about game three to really, for them to prioritize, we're going to take that away it, because it's, it's weird to think about NBA playoffs that, that that's a shot that's going to generate enough efficiency against your defense that you're going to worry about that. That's, but Trey, you know, Trey creates so much strain. Whether he, uh, honestly, if he's shooting that at like fifty percent, he still is moving defenders and creating you know easy passes for, or easy shots for other people mm-hmm. and things like that. And coming to the season, basically the whole league said you're not we're not you getting to the floater. So you know I I would have thought coming in like man he how is he going to reproduce the scoring you know where where is he going to find that you know because that was a, a main main source of his, you know, uh, scoring uh, productivity last year, it, you know, and the thing is you watch Trey this whole season, you know, he became a, a, a better shooter beyond the three point line. Um, he works at that, you know, so hard that it's, it's clear and obvious. He had a lot more balance shooting the ball from beyond um, the three point line um, this year. And then when it came to kind of the mid range, he really relied on st- uh, kind of a step back at, at the elbow oftentimes to the left. And, and every time I see him kind of add to his game, I'm like, man, that's Chris Paul stuff. It, it's, yes. it's so, you know, it's so obvious what's going on there, but just, it was almost like he knew teams were going to take his photo away this year. Teams were going to play, you know, really conservative drop against him and open that up for him. And he came up, came in with like a, a different bag uh, this yes. year, fully, fully ready. Um, and I, I, I just think it's so obvious when you watch him play year to year that there, there can't be a hard worker. Uh, when it comes on a, a a guy really trying to continue adding to his game, continue elevating his game as what he does, uh, uh, you know, especially on, on the offensive side of the court. And so, you know, I one of the things I'm excited for the Hawks already about next year is like, what's he going to add and kind of kind of coming into next year when he, you know, what he was at the top of the league and scoring and assist, you know, the whole season long. The Hawks were the number two offense from an efficiency standpoint the whole season. So just 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 what he, um. The, the the way he demonstrated being ready for teams to not give him so many opportunities to get to that floater and brought in, you know, other things into his bag ready to go at the beginning of the season is just so impressive to me um, that I, it, you know, it's just, it's crazy. It's just, there's just not, not a lot of guys that you can think across like the last 34 years, 30, 40 years or whatever of the NBA that are, you know, that dynamic, that accomplished and are still, finding ways to ex- kind of expect the adjustments the league in mass is going to make against them and still be ready and do that. And he was a better scorer and a more efficient scorer this year. And he was just as good, if not a better passer this year. And that, that just, that's just crazy to me. And what's even more impressive is that with the rule change, as far as initiating contact, uh, contact offensively, he wasn't getting to the free throw line like he was in years past. Great, great so, he re- so he really had to not necessarily reinvent his game, but to your point, had to find different ways to score and to get other people involved. And I was extremely impressed. And I know a lot of people are going to have that, you know, what have you done for me lately? Just like people want to fire name and Millen. People are going to look to the series like, oh, Trey Young's overrated. I mean, I defended Trey Young to the death with a customer of mine today. Almost didn't sell a car because <laughs> of how much I was defending Trey Young. But his work ethic and his hunger to continually to continue to improve and find ways to 
grow his game is something that needs to be commended. And in my opinion, maybe not first team all NBA, but I have him second team all NBA in my book. If he if he's 13, that's fine. But he deserves to be on an all NBA team with the injuries that have happened at the guard position across the league. He stood out. He took a, a, a step forward this year. And I'm excited, just like you, to see what he's going, what's he going to do next? I mean, in the words of Drake, we'll see what happens next, okay? Like, it, we're going to see it. And I'm I'm excited for that. And we talked about, you know, he improved. Real quick, who, who did you feel improved the most on this Hawks team or what improved on this Hawks team the most this year? Uh, I mean, yeah, that's that's so tricky. I mean, I, I felt like, um, you know, that they got um, kind of more uh, from their second unit this year. You know, it's, I can't really point at one guy. Gallo is Gallo. You know, yeah. and like when we think about Nate wanting veterans, like Gallo is the perfect, you know, kind of Nate second unit kind of scoring source, you know, and that sort of stuff. But, I mean, I thought the big step forward from the team was just not – they're not being such an on-off um, kind of disparity from when, you know, the net rating when Trey was on versus when he was off. That stabilized quite a bit this year. And some of that was, um, you know, Gallo being Gallo. Some of that was Bogey moving to the second unit, you know, for for most of this season, the way that he wasn't last year and embracing that and doing well. Um, Some of that was, you know, DeLon's ability to really be the best perimeter defender. DeLon. And then then getting more uh, minutes from Okongwu this year than last year. He missed, you know, people may forget how much time he missed last year before he really ever got on the court and yeah, he, he missed some time this year as well, but they got more from him and he was better. And so I just thought that they were much, much better on the second unit. You know, I was hoping to see more from Herter and, and like, like hunt sort of like a hunter season up and down Herter kind of, I felt like was you know pretty up and down. They missed John, you know, down the last two months of the season, uh, you know, a ton and, and that, you know, affected them. And, and, you know, and Clint, I felt like was kind of, gradually working back from injury and getting stronger physically across the season. They were better on defense once he kind of hit his stride there. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, when you look at their, you know, they finished fifth, you know, last season, got to the conference finals last season, this year, yeah, Trey was better as you and I just discussed. I, but I felt like the only thing I can really point to is that second unit being a more stable unit. Um, and, uh, and then maybe a, a, con- a Congo's growth, um, which was impressive, I think, this year. That That's really about all I see. There were times when, you know, you would see, you know, stretches of her playing better. But I, I think, you know, those young wings that um, that, that we were hoping to, to see them kind of take that next step, it was more inconsistent up and down play from them. And it's hard to say that's better. Yeah. And. It, 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 I'm a, I'm a, it goes to the next thing, which is this offseason. I'm really anxious. Um, I love the growth from Okongu this year. I'm anxious to see the growth he'll make this offseason, maybe being healthy, physically maturing, rounding out, you know, up top, adding a jump shot. Uh, he he finishes. He's very underrated as far as finishing around the rim, uh, yeah. but just being more consistent there. Uh, who who are you anxious to see grow this offseason uh, on on this Rocks roster? Who you foresee obviously staying on this Hawks roster, which will be the next thing we talk about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a has got to be right there, you know. For me, um, you know, he's he he said, I, you know, during exit interviews, like 
something along the lines of next time you see me, I'll have a jump shot and I buy that, you know, um, I, I think, you know, I've talked about the fact that I think his passing is already above average for the position. Yes. I think it's, I think it's really unnoticed largely. Um, but I, I think his passing is always going to kind of be ahead of his shooting, but if he can shoot from the corner that, and that gives you a lot more flexibility to, to, to do different things and play him with different kinds of players, um, when, when he's on the court and, and such. So, so him, I, you know, I know a lot of Hawks fans at this point kind of were, at least until game five against Miami, were wanting to see Hunter traded and people were ready to give up on him. And I get it. I mean, he had some really ugly games this year and really struggled as a ball handler. Um, and then wasn't really the defender, the consistent defender that the Hawks need him to be either. That was kind of up and down for him too. I still believe in him, not necessarily to be like, you know, the second guy that you need to put next to Trey, but just as a capable defensive wing that can make shots and then hopefully can improve his ball handling and, and still be, you know, a, the kind of wing you need on this roster. And, and on top of that, it's hard to find guys that are his size and that have the raw skill set he has. That's not easy to find. And I just think it would be uh, premature to give up on him. And I, that's not to say that there's a great trade opportunity out there. And you, you, yeah, you have to consider including him in that. If that's what the team wants. But um, but for me, a Kongu, you know, I want to be a believer in Hunter and see him come back and hopefully be injury free for a good long stretch and see how that might help him stabilize his play. And then, you know, you know, Herder too, kind of settling into maybe not being kind of thrust into that one B role, like 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 the situations kind of always seem to kind of call for him and see some growth for him, kind of a little bit more of a glue guy kind of player. So you know, I'm still um, hopeful for them. I, I think. You know, Herder going into the season he's going to, and the same for Hunter. You know, you're not expecting the same amount of growth you expect from like year one to year two, for example. That's just a very natural thing. But I still think there is important improvement that they could have. But you know, if I had to rank it, it would be a Kongu one. Um, you know, I mean, I have, I don't really know what to expect from Jalen Johnson, but if Gallo moves on, as the cap sheet kind of suggests, is likely. Mm-hmm. Will Nate will Nate buy into Jalen being the you know, the the backup forward? I can't wait to see him in you know summer league. You know, so so that's there too. But you know, there's a head, and, we, and you and I kind of talked about this a little bit before we got you know hit the record button. But you know, Nate is a coach who has said openly, "We're not doing development." That's his. Those are his exact words. And you know, I I know he doesn't mean we're not working on player development. I know that what he means is that we're not going to allocate minutes for the purpose of developing players. We're playing to win, but I still think that's kind of a bad um, message to put mm-hmm. out there in any form um, and such. So, you know, that's one of the things I'm scratching my head about is like, is the organization going to get behind Jalen Johnson and see him from day one next year as a rotation player? And is Nate going to buy into that? And if so, what does that look like when Jalen's making mistakes? So, I mean, the Hawks still have so much kind of young talent. None of them are the one B that you need to put next to trade. None of them are like, not one of them are. We know that now for sure. Um, maybe like even me, maybe I should have seen that sooner than I did, but you know, I, I, I think you let things play out and you let guys prove to you what they are and what they aren't. And that's again, the valuable thing of this outcome of this Miami series. So I think all those young guys are still really worthwhile. Um, how, how do you pay Hunter? You know, do you extend him uh, or not? That's a different conversation between like, do I expect improvement? I do expect improvement. Um, even though I, I, I'm now um, 
thinking that all of us should understand that none of them are going to be the one B. Yeah. I I mean, I agree with everything that you said. None of them are going to be the one B. Jalen Johnson needs opportunity. We know that Coach McMillan, unless something crazy happens this offseason in his development, and obviously we'll foresee whatever happens with Gallo, will he get that opportunity? I certainly would like to, especially with his athleticism, um, his defensive <laughs> potential, um, the bare bones of his game. Uh, he has a lot to provide for this team, just needs to see the court. And that leads us into the the last part of this episode, which is we talked about maybe not letting Hunter go. I'm agree. I'm agreeing. I don't know if we let, I don't think we let Hunter go. I think he's, he's his mainstay. I think Okongu is a mainstay, but Gallo, you mentioned Herder, John Collins, when you're thinking about putting another person next to Trey Young, and that I mean the NBA season technically is not over. Ours is, but you know we still got the playoffs. There's still a lot of information to be had. It's still a lot of reflection for players who are potentially could be good fits next to Trey Young for them to have this offseason to say, hey, do I want to request a trade or not? But who out there is an ideal fit? And who is expendable as far as for this Hawks roster now to go get said player or players uh, in your mind at this point? Yeah, I mean, so depending on who is available, basically the Hawks almost have to see any player other than Trey as someone you would consider moving in the right trade, right? Um, You know, and I, I say that as a guy who likes, you know, the players on the roster quite a bit, but... You know, any team that's trying to really kind of, you know, really get their trajectory as high as they can get it has to be open to getting a, you know, potential what, top 15, top 20, top 25 type of player. That, I mean, that's a, you can't force something like that to be available ever. You kind of have to wait until a situation like that kind of reveals itself and then have the capital to kind of get in the mix. Uh, when I look across the league right now, maybe we'll feel differently in like a month from now or so. As yeah. the reporting around teams that might, you know, well, this guy's disgruntled or this guy doesn't really like playing for this. Co- we're at a point in the season where we're not going to hear that stuff so much yet, right? Yeah. But when we get closer to July 1st, that's when agents will start leaking a little bit of noise like that. Organizations might start leaking a little noise like that. And that will start to kind of come up down the line a little bit. Um, as far as, you know, players that, you know, we, we know that the Pacers are looking to, to change things. So I look at a guy like Malcolm Brogdon. Not a superstar uh, player, probably you know. If we were to kind of kind of label him borderline all star, um, but if he's available for an affordable um, kind of package, I think that's he's a guy who gives you a lot on defense and gives you that creation that you know, that one B kind of creation. He's not the guy you're ever gonna have on the top of your list, and you know, that's just that's just not who he is. But he's better than what they have, quite a bit better than what they have now. Yeah. He struggles to give you 2,000 minutes in a season and set in, in more than 55 games or so. So you just you, know, you kind of have to live with that. But if he's an affordable get, I, I think that kind of makes some sense for the Hawks. I, you know, another example of like, I have no idea, but does, does Shea Gilders Alexander want to be in Oklahoma City? And does he want to play with Josh Giddy? You know, a guy that it seems like Giddy's going to be a guy that they run the show kind of like Luca Light, you know, in a, in a way. And if Shea's not banging into that, you know, and he's uh, available, he's a phenomenal guy to think about putting next to Trey. He has that kind of 
um, elite secondary creation potential, and he's uh, a terrific defender and gives you kind of a lot there. I, I would put Shea a lot above Brogdon, but like, mm-hmm. I have to say, like, I have no idea, like, if that's something he's buying into or not. We we just don't don't know. I look at Toronto and I'm like, you know, how much further could have Toronto gone this year if they had a legitimate center? And I've sort of like kind of joked around. You know, would they be interested in like moving because Scotty is working out so well? Would they look at moving OG for like Capella and other stuff, right? I I'm like again, I have no clue if that's something that would be possible, but that would be like OG is like twice as probably you know twice as good right now as as we hope Hunter could be, you know, and a really really good outcome, you know. Yes, yes. You know? And so, so that I mean, but again, like OG's good. Like it's not like the the, the Toronto is going to be casually like, oh, let's just trade OG. No, we're talking about if they are like, we need a center that can anchor our defense because that, that's just something they weren't able to do this year. And, you know, I think about in Dallas. I mean, Mark Cuban is kind of uh, aggressive to uh, a crazy level sometimes. It's like, would they see themselves needing to get Dorian Finney Smiths? salary off the books to make room for them to go try something really, really aggressive. But if that's the case, you know, he's a tremendous, you know, strong wing defender that can defend up to the four and can shoot the basketball enough to help you on offense too. But I mean, but again, the Mavericks aren't going to be looking to casually move Dory Vinnie Smith. That's a thing like if they're like, Oh, they have a shot to go chase someone really, really, really good. And also they have to clear their cap sheet. So, you know, I feel like, you know, Travis, you know, what, you know, um, probably the best thing he's done is that they're still still sitting on a lot of a lot of draft capital. They're still sitting on a lot of young players that are pretty intriguing. And if one of those kinds of possibilities opens up, then I think they have enough to get into the mix and try to make that happen. Who are those players? Hard to know. I was speculating there about OG and Dorian Finney-Smith and Shea, you know, for example. But that to me, that's the kind of stuff that you have to be prepared to pounce when that opportunity presents itself. And maybe we'll see more uh, things like that, more scenarios like that about a month from now that we don't see right now. And the Hawks are pretty well positioned with draft capital. They are pretty well positioned with, you know, young players that teams, you know, looking to rebuild might might value, you know, in that kind of year three, four, five range. Um, so that, that that's kind of where my head is right now. So not a lot of concrete stuff, but I think that that's just the shape of the types of things that who knows might be possible. And I think they're pretty well positioned to get in the mix, depending on kind of what opens up, if that makes sense. Just like the beautiful movie, beautiful mind that, uh, I mean, I think those are very, very great options that you, like I said, we don't, we don't have enough information yet, but I would OG, OG who I was going to say, when we were talking about Hunter, a lot of people were saying maybe Kawhi comparisons when we talking about DeAndre Hunter, and I see more OG. And there's nothing wrong with being an OG. That would be a wonderful player to add here. Um, I've talked about a little bit on Twitter. I've thrown out Siakam just because of the – and it, it depends on how long Nick Nurse is going to be there. But the squabble right. was between him and Nick last year and how much they love Barnes and it, do they want to – kind of give him the keys and do they see have they seen enough to say hey let's go ahead and move on um obviously not hawks related but i think that rudy gobert could be a landing spot in toronto uh this offseason i think rudy gobert coming over to the eastern conference and toronto needing that anchor that you were talking about i think that would be a wonderful fit and maybe there's a three-way trade there but who 
who knows, but I think that, like like you said, we need to wait for a little bit more information. A lot of people have been putting Hawks jerseys on Donovan Mitchell already saying, hey, <laughs> there it is right there, guys. That's the answer. And I don't know if that's necessarily the answer. I think we, and we've, we've talked about it on Twitter. Defense needs to be a focus. We, we're missing an enforcer, missing a big, bigger guard next to Trey Young that can guard the best player on the other team and maybe create for themselves. There, there are some needs out there, but like, like you said, we don't know until the dust settles, the season's over, the Larry O'Brien is hosted up, and then July rolls around, and like you said, those rumblings come out to see what is really available. So unlike fans across the board, we have to be patient. We can't fix it all today. We can't fix it all. Maybe we can't fix it all this offseason, but we need to wait to see what is truly available out there. And we need to trust because Schlenk has made, hasn't made a lot of bad moves in his tenure here in Atlanta. He has not. Um, some people may say otherwise. And that's, you know, purely, you know, based on your your thought process. But. That we had, there, there's an opportunity for them to really take a step forward. Uh, and as much as I wanted to see the season continue, so we can continue to talk about live games, this was probably the best thing that could have happened to the Hawks with it being a disappointing season, like you said, to kind of reset, reevaluate, let more information happen, have the exit meetings, let people go to Cancun or Cabo, and maybe uh, maybe maybe they go hang out with a. Uh, you know, Jared Allen somewhere uh, since they knocked him out and sent him uh, sent them home. And you really, you know, think about the direction of this franchise, because, I mean, you, me and you are on one accord. The future is bright for this franchise, no matter what happened this season, no matter what happened in this playoff series versus Miami. The future is really bright. But this is a huge offseason for Travis Schlenk. This is where he's really going to make his money. So there's going to be a lot of eyes on him and. I think going into next season, depending on what happens with that coaching staff and moves, I think a lot of eyes are going to continue to be on Nate McMillan if they struggle out of the gate and the uh, hashtag fire Nate McMillan uh, mentions continue to grow at a potential staggering number if that were to happen. But beautiful mind, as everybody sees. I hope you guys took your, you know, got a pen and pad out, wrote some of the takes that Glenn has because this guy does not miss. He does not miss. I mean, like Chris Paul in the oh God, this is a soft spot for me. Uh, Chris Paul clinching, obviously, the series over my Pelicans the other night. Um, Glenn just does not miss. And Glenn, I want to thank you again for coming on the program today for just such a great conversation of kind of like the state of the union, state of the Hawks going into the offseason. And like I said, like I can't appreciate your insight your work that you put into, you know, all the way, you know, three hours behind evaluating the Hawks and then having your thoughts and putting them out on Twitter. So fans go follow him. And Glenn, I'm going to give this floor to let everybody know what you got cooking and what you got coming up, obviously, as the season um, it, it, it closes, but a new season will loom, obviously, in October. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate you having me on. Really enjoyed the conversation here, and, and hope we can do this again uh, sometime um, on Twitter at Willis underscore Glenn. That's Glenn with one N. Um, should be too too hard 
to find me. Um, I, I contribute uh, occasionally p3hoops.com. Uh, um, life is getting busier for me, so a little less output there, but um, you can kind of catch anything I do on Twitter. Um, I, um, I I appear really regularly with uh, Kevin Chenard, ATL29 podcast. Um, proud of kind of what we have going on over there and uh, and such, but that's, that's kind of where you see it. If you follow me now, you'll get um, some thoughts on the rest of the playoffs kind of going forward uh, and such. It obviously won't be as detailed as kind of the th- stuff I put out around the Hawks, but I'll, if I see something interesting, I'll, I'll kind of put it out there. But <clears throat> especially as we get closer to the draft um, and then uh, free agency and all that sort of stuff, I enjoy conversation. So hit me up. Give me a follow if you, w- if you want to. And uh, let's, let's have some fun conversation as we get into this really, really, just like Brad just laid it out, really interesting and pivotal offseason the Hawks are approaching. Guys, he's a must-follow. Please follow him. He's going to be back on the show, draft, trades, free agency. As we you know, alluded to, we're going to get him on because he has great insight. And uh, one statement Kevin seems like a wonderful person to hang out with. I, I follow him on Twitter. He just seems like a, just a very charismatic, fun-loving guy, and I just I just enjoy the content and the jokes that he puts out. Uh, so there you go. You can only if I enjoy it, you can imagine how their show is. So then, so support their show. Follow Glenn. You know, if you, if you can't find him on Twitter. Look at my page. I probably retweeted him or tweeted at him. Uh, so <laughs> you should be able to see him. And as you guys already know, if you love what you heard today, give us five stars. Give us a good review. Share it and tell everybody. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend about one of the hottest new podcasts covering the Atlanta Hawks. You already know. Share with fellow Hawks fans, NBA fans, basketball fans, Georgia sports fans, ceiling fans. It does not matter if they have ears. <laughs> put them on to my show you know how to follow us follow us on twitter at ethos hawks on twitter that is at ethos hawks and then follow myself brad jarrett six seven that is brad j-a-r-r-e-t-t six seven you guys stay safe i'm not going to be gone for a while we're going to come back soon with some more content here on your favorite hawks podcast